Welcome, welcome. I'm Peter Madlin, and you are listening to the Teacher's Lounge podcast from WNIJ. If you've never listened to the show before, good news, super simple concept. Every single educator we have on this show is nominated by our listeners. So tell us about the teacher who comes to your mind. Who is the best teacher you ever had? Someone that's inspired you. Tell us that story and shoot us an email about them at teacherslounge at niu.edu and they could be on the podcast. Also, our little old podcast here is now on the radio as well. I know if you're listening to this on Friday, the day that it drops on podcast services, today our show is on the air for the first time. So you can hear Teacher's Lounge as a monthly hour-long show on WNIJ. That's 89.5 FM, if you don't know. And the last Friday of every month at 11 a.m. You can hear Teacher's Lounge, the radio show, jam-packed with the interviews and stories you love, along with some exclusive new segments that you can only find on the radio. So please, please, please do check it out if you enjoy the show. Okay, so on today's episode, we are going to be climbing to the very top of the education food chain. That's right. We are chatting with Chris Tennyson, who is a regional superintendent, meaning that he helps oversee dozens of school districts in three counties. He took a really unusual path into education. He started as a police officer for a decade, and we'll talk about how he got from local law enforcement to principal and now superintendent. We've also got a shorter conversation with Mark Kleisner, who is the president of the Illinois Association of Regional Superintendents of Schools. So it's not often that we get these more zoomed out statewide perspectives on the show, and they've got a lot to share. All right, well, before we get to talk to those leaders in education, I have a fascinating story I want to tell you about. It may carry some Halloween tropes. There may be a mummy involved even, but this is not a Halloween story. A school in Illinois, Naperville Central High School, houses something rare and strange and has for decades. By all accounts, they're the only public high school in possession of a real ancient Egyptian mummy. 2,100 years ago, in the time of Cleopatra, when the Greeks ruled ancient Egypt, a little girl died. She was around seven years old and probably chronically sick. Her family preserved her body, mummification, wrapped in linen and papyrus, adorned with images of the gods to secure her a good place in the afterlife. Twenty centuries later, and over 6,000 miles away, her body, her parents' final wish, resurfaced in a dusty attic storage room at Naperville Central High School. The mummy rested there for decades after the school received her as a gift from a Naperville doctor in the 1940s. The story goes that he bought the mummy on a trip to Egypt years earlier. By the time he donated his collection, the sale of mummies in Egypt was illegal. Tom Henneberry started teaching history at Naperville Central a few years after its discovery. When I got there, the mummy was just in this glass, just as simple like a library display case. It was in terrible shape. It had a hole in its side. The mask was broken. The the face covering was broken. Someone had even ripped off bandages. Her ribs, her shoulders, and even the side of her face were showing. In the early years, Henneberry and other teachers would carry the display case into his classroom for ancient history lessons and bring in sixth graders to learn about mummies. Henneberry says he saw the educational value immediately. How often do students get the opportunity to see an over 2,000-year-old mummy up close at school? They reorganized the history curriculum to start with ancient Egypt. This is a, a person who lived, you know, 20 centuries ago. And, you know, I mean, even the most jaded kid would say, that's kind of that's cool. But he says there's a balance between novelty and respect for the dead. 
He'd remind students that the body isn't a mascot. They can't take Halloween photos with it. But when she was first found, the teacher who discovered her nicknamed the mummy Butch, maybe because they'd assumed she was a boy. Henneberry says they later realized the nickname was disrespectful and stopped saying it. At that point, they knew next to nothing about who this person was. The mummy stayed in a simple glass box until the early 90s. Finally got enough sense and said, you know, we can't do this. We got to have some professionals check this out, you know, so we're not just destroying, you know, a person as well as a priceless antiquity. They got the mummy restored by experts at the University of Chicago and the Field Museum. They had DNA tests done. That's when they found out she was a little girl. Carbon dating her bandages confirmed that she lived around 100 BCE. Hanaberry says at that time, they thought about just donating her to the museum. We were told, well, that's nice, but since it's still a bit of a mystery how it actually got here, you know, besides the doctor bringing it, they're like, we can't really take it. The school also secured a museum-quality case to properly display the mummy, along with beads to absorb humidity and keep the wrappings from deteriorating. In the 21st century, archaeologists and Egyptologists have grappled with the ethics of displaying mummies. Is it inappropriate to show off ancient corpses, especially those collected by foreign tourists and taken from Egypt? Some museums have changed exhibits to try and treat them as people rather than an old painting or clay pot. Hanneberry says repairing the mummy's tattered bandages and running tests to learn about who she was and how she may have died made them feel like they treated her with the utmost dignity, not just as a curiosity. The way they taught students using the ancient girl has evolved over the years as well. I felt personally, but then as a teacher, it really became a tremendous you know, tool to not only talk about Egypt, but like talk about how we have to be very respectful with the past as well as the present cultures. Henneberry retired in 2019, but says that she's in safe hands, being used for classes like ancient history and religion, as well as with philosophy and science like archaeology. The mummy, with her decorated papyrus mask covering her face and hair curled into ringlets, is still on display in the atrium of the history department. Okay, now it's time for our first conversation of the day with Mark Kleisner. He joins the show to talk to us about how schools are betting on micro-credentials, these short online teacher and staff development programs to help their students stay on track through the pandemic. There's lots of school districts that use professional development, so I'm curious, you know, the things that are unique here, kind of the bet that they're making, and why now, why this is important. I'd just love to hear more about it. We probably could have several conversations. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's go back to pre-COVID. I, I wish I wish we could. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> because at that time, um, Illinois educators were looking at what remote environments would look like. Pre-COVID, the, the, the idea was we could have a snow day, but still have a remote learning day. Mm -hmm. Kids continue to learn. I remember that, the death of the snow day headlines. That seems so charming and, you know, <laughs> antiquated exactly. now, right? Yep, exactly. So that was actually happening all over the state in January of 2020. Mm -hmm. So this conversation really goes back a long way. And I often said at the end of the first semester, <laughs> we were planning for a one-day event. And at that point, you know, it was three months. Yeah, I remember when I, it, it probably in March of 2020, right as the first school closures got announced, I was on a Zoom call with, I think it was the Illinois Digital Educators Association, talking about how we're going to do these things. And again, it, it, you're right, it felt like it was a one day or two day. And I remember pausing to them like, you know, if we have to do this for 
you know, two or three weeks, is that going to be possible? And that seemed completely outlandish. That seemed impossible. Yep. Yep. And then we had no choice, right. you know, as of the 17th of March, boom, it immediately launched the question about how do we help support teachers who've not taught this way? And to today's point, we had been working with Bloomboard on the idea of micro-credentials and the real backbone of the conversation of micro-credentials is how do you make them condensed and short in, in duration and yet deep in quality? You can probably complete it in a month. And so the things that started to rise to the surface, we were already working on things like leadership. We were working on things like um, English as a second language, but very quickly teachers said, you know, I need help with SEL. Social emotional learning is top of my list right now. Kids are struggling. This is all a weird environment. How do I get some knowledge about SEL? So how could we give little pieces that had real depth and meaning, not just, you know, 30,000 feet? You know, I, I saw that it's not just teachers. It's, it's kind of everybody in the school orbit as well. I think that it mentions, you know, secretaries and bus drivers and other, you know, support staff being eligible to get these micro-credentials, not just the teachers who I think is the people in education people think of when they think professional development opportunities. They just think classroom teachers or maybe principals. In my own organization, we just hired 25 people to be support at-risk students um, in the field. And one of the things we're doing is using micro-credentials as a way of onboarding. Mm -hmm. So we can say these three micro-credentials represent how we philosophically, how we approach students who are at risk. And you need to complete these three within your first year. And that's doable because they're less expensive. But then we've worked on cases where then teachers find them more affordable or districts are actually able to do some stipending because they tend to be a more affordable format too. It isn't like you're saying, well, I'm gonna sign up for a two years master program. You're saying, I'm gonna take like 101 of social emotional learning or remote teaching. And if that really resonates with you, take another one or take another one. Our triangulation with Bloomboard now has included a fourth point where uh, the regional offices, the school district and the micro-credential builder are now working with the university and the university's able, St. Francis University has been able to align course syllabi with one or more uh, micro-credentials. So after you complete several micro-credentials, you can receive college credit. I was going to ask more about the catalog because, you know, maybe now you have fewer teachers taking classes about remote learning setups since maybe people are moving more away from that. It sounds like you're saying that there's a pretty broad swath of different options that people have, and you could kind of do a sample platter where you grab one of everything, or there's opportunity to, if you have one topic like SEL, you can actually just dig deeper into that one topic. Yep, exactly right. And in fact, depending on what, what state you live in, like in Louisiana, they took the leadership sequence. Yeah. And that's how you get endorsed to be a principal. You take the leadership sequence of micro-credentials. When you've completed that, that gives you an endorsement to be a principal in that state. And so that's kind of the one end of the continuum. The sampler platter is the other end of the continuum. Ballpark, do we have an idea of if, let's take Illinois as an example, if we live here, how many options there are? It's in the hundreds. 
in the hundreds. It's a lot um, because almost any topic that we see as, as relevant can be chunked and provided. If you've got the content available, you're good to go. We, we're working right now with the Latino Policy Forum and designing a series of four separate leadership in English as a second language. So it's like, it's like double specific. Um, and we're working with ISU. So we've got some teacher people. We've got Latino Policy Forum that, that are experts in ESL work. And then the ROEs are working with Bloomboard to, to pull this together to, to create a series of four. So we're constantly building more. Um, the SEL ones I talked about are getting widespread use. Um, some leadership ones have been getting used. I mentioned Louisiana. I think there are several other states that are considering making this a means by which you can get full-blown endorsements. And we've started conversations in Illinois with ISBE. I was going to ask that question next. Is that the goal in Illinois? The best answer is, um, for some people, the, uh, the answer would be definitely. <laughs> yeah. The, the micro-credential people, some folks like that would say, absolutely. Higher ed would say probably not, mm -hmm. you know, because this has been a higher higher ed piece of the pie, right? And so you go back to school to become a principal, or go back to school to be a superintendent. So some yes, some no. I I'm thrilled that places like ISU Northern, we've been doing some work in Western St. Francis. Higher ed is embracing it as part of the you said sampler platter. I like that that this works for some folks. I am really hopeful that it could be used in this kind of certification realm, particularly bridging from paraprofessionals to full-blown teachers. Right. Forgetting um, that actual, I guess, credential of the word for it, but but getting your, as part of the teacher licensure process. Yep. Yep. And I'm sure you're aware all over the state, we're really struggling with teacher shortage discussions. Right. And, and substitute teachers as well, as we talked about. Yeah. So you could imagine if this were fully online and deliverable online asynchronously, that you wouldn't have to ask a paraprofessional to go back to college to get their degree. You wouldn't have to ask them to stop working. So I think there's a lot of potential, particularly in these areas that we've identified during the teacher shortage studies. Now it's time for the main course, our conversation with a man who has held many, many very, very different titles in his career. Again, he's been a police officer, a school resource officer, a teacher, a principal, and now a regional superintendent of schools. So hear about Chris Tennyson's journey and what he's learned along the way. Forgive us if we also indulge in a few minutes of Chicago Bears talk too, but enjoy. Has it been more normal over the last couple months or does it still kind of feel similar to how it was last year? No, it's a lot better. I oversee and work with 24 school districts. Yeah. So uh, once we went back to in-person learning and the state superintendent said, we're going back to in-person learning, that means that our schools are open and uh, I'm out and about, you know, we're, we're uh, in the middle of doing school inspections, which we're responsible for every year. And when principals and superintendents need things, you know, there's times we have to go out to the district. So it's been great, you know, just out and about and back in the hallways with the students. It's been great. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, too, because like, I feel like a lot of your job is, you know, based on these relationships and, you know, talking to people in the hallway, whether it be like staff or students, all this stuff. And then you get in the pandemic and all of a sudden everything has to change to 
you know, accommodate and you have to be on these Zoom calls and everything. So it probably feels good to be back, you know, doing inspections in the building, talking to people, doing all that stuff. It's really great. It was hard last year because I, I'm a I'm a people person. I'm not yeah. an introvert. I get my energy from getting out and about, and and that's why I love so much being you know a high school principal for all the years that I did it and teacher, and then I was a police officer in my former career. So I love being out and about, talking to people, helping people. So yeah, last year was a rough year, having to do a lot of those things through Zoom and 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 do the best we could to support the schools in, in any way that we could without actually being there. Yeah. I saw another interview that you did a while back for a, must a different podcast, and it mentioned that you were a big Bears fan. I see the Bears helmet behind you there. I'm curious, just you know, get off there. I don't get the opportunity to talk Bears much on these type of things because actually a couple of years ago, very early on in the show, I was interviewing a principal and we got into it. And I like kind of, I feel like I kind of jinxed the Bears because I said something really nice about Mitch Trubisky. And then like the 2019 season happened and I'm like, oh God. I just should be forbidden from talking sports on any professional platform, but how are you feeling so far? Are, are you feeling the hype for Justin? How are you, how are you feeling right now? Well, yeah, I think it's exciting in my lifetime. I think he might be one of the best quarterbacks we've ever had. The hard part right now is, you know, the coaching staff, I, I, I don't, don't talk bad about people and I've never met Matt Nagy, so I don't have a right to give my opinion on him really. But when I look at data, I like to look at data. And there's no doubt when he turns over the offensive play calling to Bill Lazor as coordinator, yeah. it seems like the offense does a lot better. And he was calling the plays against Cleveland and he almost got our new quarterback killed. So I'm hoping that he does the right thing and just focuses on being a head coach and lets his defensive coordinator and offensive coordinator work on the game plans because I think we'll be a lot better. I agree. The game plan for Cleveland was one of the more confounding football games I've ever watched in my life. And then you you move over to Bill Lazor last week, and all of a sudden we're connecting for like 45-yard passes down the seam to Darnell Mooney. And I was like, I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't even know we could do that as the Chicago Bears. I'm excited. I just hope that the coaching staff doesn't get in the way. You and, you and me and all the rest of Chicago, too. <laughs> yep. Well, we can get into the more, you know, teacher's lounge related stuff if you want to, because, you know, you're the regional superintendent for Lee over Whiteside, and this is really your first full year in the lead role. And obviously, this is a weird time in general for people to take over new positions and, and, and take over new roles. But so far, how has it, how has it been? It's been awesome. I, I did. I took over July 1st for Bob Sonnegroth, who retired. He was the regional super, I believe, for 12 years. And it, it's just been great. I, I, our job is, is, it's a really interesting job. It's unlike any other in education. So it took a little getting used to. I was Bob's assistant for three years. And as I told you early, earlier, I, I'm an extrovert. I, I just love being a high school principal and I love teaching. I, I love being in a building every day where I feel like I'm part of something. I mean, for five years, I was a steamer. And for seven years before that, I was a Dixon Duke when I was the assistant principal at Dixon High School. So you, you have those connections and you kind of miss those daily connections. And I had, you know, obviously I had the opportunity to, to influence and help, you know, some young people along the way, but now I have kind of a direct influence on 24 school districts. You know, my office has the ability to help provide the superintendents, principals, teachers, and the support staff with the tools they need and, and the things they need to better help kids. So that's when you stop and think about it, I, I don't necessarily have the individual relationships I've had with those students in the past, but man, when I think about the number of students that I can help in this position, it's awesome. And one of the best things about our office is we're responsible for the alternative schools. 
for the county. So I oversee a school in Rock Falls and, and it's for students that have been expelled for discipline issues or students that have been through multiple traumas at an early age and suffer from high stress and anxiety and they just don't do well in a normal school setting. You know, the thought of getting called on in a classroom full of 30 students and not having the right answer would just be devastating for them. Yeah. So uh, our school, we have about 65 students now in Rock Falls and, and we get to help them. And that is just amazing. I get over there whenever I can. I've got my assistant superintendent oversees the school and then we have a principal there at the school. But I get over there whenever I can because those, those students are just, the kids are amazing. You know, the, there's so much that they can do. And once they, you know, a lot of times our staff, it's the first time in their life they hear that they can do anything or that they're worth anything. And, and working with them and watching them grow and getting them graduated is a lot of fun. So there's a lot of cool parts to my job. So that's maybe helped scratch some of the itch of the day-to-day -day interactions, being able to I, talk with students. Yep. If I have if I have the availability in my days, even though they're pretty busy, I try and get over there, um, you know, when I can. Yeah. And I know that there's a lot of teachers and administrators that listen to the show and are probably pretty familiar with what regional offices does. But I think that there's a separate section of our audience who, you know, have kids in education and, you know, kids in school or just interested that might have less of an idea of when we're talking about a regional district that, you know, looks out for several different counties. And I know you guys do a multitude of things. You guys are overseeing the licensing part of this, you know, professional development, inspections, facilitating things with the state. There's a lot of duties that all fall under your umbrella. And, and people ask me about it and people that aren't familiar with education, I kind of try and sum it up this way. I, I, I tell them, you know what a white, you know what a county sheriff's department does you know they kind of oversee a county and they help and assist the local police departments when they need help and provide that support and, and that's kind of what we are for education and i sum it up in one word support you know you mentioned licensure you know the 24 school districts in my three counties it's our job to make sure that everyone working there has the proper licensure and we we do that i have a, a licensure expert here mary escamilla who's just fabulous and she she works tirelessly to help districts make sure that their educators are certified. And if they need people to find help find people that are certified or, or people that they're interested in help get them their certification. So that's a big chunk of what we do. We are responsible for physically walking through every building in our three counties every year, all the schools and making sure that they're safe for the students and the teachers and the, and the support staff. We do that every year, which is an important job. We uh, also work with all the school districts to make sure that they're following educational laws. Uh, you know, once every four years, a district meets with us and there's a state system where we work with them to make sure we upload proof that they're, you know, that their their policies are current, you know, that they are, they have policies for anti-bullying and other things that are mandated by law that they need to be taken care of. We go in and make sure that they not only have those policies, but that they're making sure that the students and teachers are getting taken care of. And if there's issues, they're taking care of them. So it's a lot of guidance and things like that. Right. And then we're playing a big point guard. You're basically playing point guard with all different, you know, state entities or between the districts, trying to make sure people are in line with guidance, like you said. That's it. Support and relationships. A big part of our job is having those relationships with uh, ISBE, you know, the State Board of Education, because we're the go-between for our districts in ISBE, and then with community organizations. You know, we're we're our superintendents don't have time to to, to go out away from their districts and try and get help from organizations where they don't know they might be able to provide help or that that relationship could exist. And, and we're able to do that. I sit on many different boards 
and 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 go to many different retreats to try and help make those connections. Uh, you know, like earlier this this week, I was uh, for two days. I was with the the management staff of KSB Hospital and Dixon, and they did a two-day retreat on just kind of putting their three-year plan and five-year plan together to get better, to how to better serve the community. And one of the main things we talked about, because uh, I was there and the superintendent from Dixon was there, was how do we make sure that our students in Lee County that are underserved or maybe from a low-income uh, you know, segment are getting medical care that they need, that they might not have access to. And that was one of the six pillars that we talked about. How do we identify those families and make sure they're getting the help they need? So I have the time to do some of those things that the superintendents don't. So in addition to support, it's about building relationships with our community organizations that can then in turn help kids. Do you feel like it's a different skill set going from being a principal to being in a regional office, or is it just you know, on a different scale and, and working with different people through the community? Like, how was the transition for you from being inside one building to in a more overseeing and zoomed out role? I think, I think some people would tell you, yes, I think for me, it's been pretty easy. I don't know that it's a different skill set because I'm just laser focused on, is there something we could be doing to help kids right now? Yep. And, and when, when my role as a principal it would be as simple as having seven students go through my office that day that were in trouble or referred to me or, or issues. And it was trying to help them understand how to get better. Now in my current role, it's like, wait a minute, I have this opportunity to give up a day of my time. But if I do that and work with this organization, it may end up, we may end up having a rolling, you know, we're talking about a rolling uh, health clinic, you know, an, a medical RV that could roll around to the small districts in Lee County and provide regular appointments for those students. So it's anytime I get asked to be involved in anything that I think will help our kids, I'm there. I don't care what it takes. So I think that's just been my skill set. And I, whether I'm adapting it to talking to a student or talking to a parent or talking to um, a business owner about how we can partner to help kids, I just that's what I focused on. So I just feel like that's the skills made the main skill set I've, I've carried with me. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, the licensure part of this is, is part of what you guys do. And I think that people are one of the huge stories that we've been talking about for the last couple of years, right, is this idea of the teacher shortage. Some, and I know that especially with the pandemic, a lot of people were concerned about, oh, are we going to see, you know, a, a huge amount of teachers leave the profession? There were all these statistics and surveys out saying that, you know, 30 plus percent of teachers were thinking about leaving the profession. And I know lots of districts were having trouble with, with substitute teachers. Coming around to this, you know, new school year, which isn't so new anymore, is over a month old. How has everything been in terms of just, you know, having and finding the appropriate amount of staff? Has it been as much of a challenge this year as it has been the last couple? It's been a challenge. I was, I was really worried because when you, if you know a teacher and you've talked to them, they will tell you last year's horrible. I don't know no. any of my friends that are teachers that said that remote learning went well. No, I, th I think they all did their best. And I think they, that we all did a lot of good helping kids the best that we could but when you talk about the opportunity to be back in person, face to face with students this year, yeah. it's huge. I mean, yeah. when I, I talk to so many teachers and they tell me, Chris, I feel like a teacher again because I didn't feel like one last year. Right. So I think the fact that we're back to in person and I had so many students that I've talked to, you know, with the, the masking, it's like they've told me, you know what, if I can get back to school and be face to face with my friends and my teachers, I'll wear the mask. It's no big deal. And, and you know, yeah. we're wearing the mask. So I, in my 24 school districts, we haven't had any issues with, you know, not wearing the masks. I mean, I, yeah. I, 
I, I will go on record with anyone that asked me. I did not agree with the mandate, and I don't agree with hardly any state mandates because we have a school system set up here in Illinois where if you live in a community, you get to vote for school boards and you elect the local school boards and those local school board members get to make the policy decisions and what's best for education for those schools, especially in a state as diverse as Illinois. I always advocate for local control because something in the Chicago suburbs may be needed there and, and the school board in that district should get what that school needs, but it doesn't mean it's what's right for Dixon or for Sterling. Right. So anytime the state or the federal government gets involved in mandating what we have to do in all parts of a state. I, I don't agree with that, but I've also advised all my districts, you need to follow all the, the, the orders. I mean, when the governor makes an order and ISB makes an order, if you don't follow it, you risk losing your funding and your students not being able to play athletics. And that's the last thing anyone wants. So our districts are all following it and they're back to in-person. And I've had a lot of educators tell me that they, it's just, they, they feel like they're a teacher again, and that's exciting. So We've had, a, we've had a few shortages and I've right. helped, we've helped some districts try and fill some positions with some subs and some other things and we're working on that, but it really, knock on wood, wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And we're starting to get some of our subs coming back now that yeah. the vaccinations are out there because really in any area, a lot of the people at sub are retired teachers. So yep. that's a high risk group for COVID. And if you're in that high risk group, I don't blame them for not wanting to be out and about when we really didn't know what was going to happen or go on. So we're starting to get people come back to subbing too. Yeah. Now I want to talk a little bit, Chris, obviously about your own background. And I think that you mentioned already that you started off in, in law enforcement and you were a police officer for a decade or so before you yep. went into education. It, it was, that was just what I wanted to do. You know, when I was yep. born and raised that, you know, how when you're young, you kind of something interests you. And I was always interested by police shows and, and thought it would be neat to do that. And I've always been the kind of person that I, it's important for me to help people that need help or maybe help those that can't help themselves. And it was just a, an easy choice for me. And I did it and got into law enforcement, loved it. I was a patrol officer for two years up in Lake County, Illinois. I worked for mm -hmm. Moneyline Police Department. And then I made the, the street gangs kind of came out of nowhere in the early 90s and they were all over. So I got assigned to the, the gang crime task force in Lake County. So for two years, I was very busy. We were doing a lot of work in Waukegan and North Chicago and some of the towns up there that were having multiple gang homicides every week. So that was kind of a busy and scary time for me. And then came back out of that and then uh, was assigned to become the school resource officer at Mundelein High School. We had Is about that something that you volunteered for or you were just assigned it, to it? It the position became open the first time and, and another officer got it. And then I talked to that officer and, and it sounded interesting to me because I never, ever thought of myself going into education, not something I was interested in. And uh, when it came open again, uh, the chief talked to me and, and I, there was a process to go through and, and I was assigned to it. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I was a school resource officer there for six years. Uh, in charge of Mundelein High School, which had about 2,000 students, and then Carmel High School is a large Catholic high school in Mundelein also, which I was available if they needed help. I wasn't over there as much, mm -hmm. but uh, it was just phenomenal, and, and I, I probably would still be the school resource officer there today. I love the job so much, but I, I was um, getting pulled out to, you know, kind of go back up the ranks at the police department, and I had to make a decision, so I retired early so I could get into education, and just here I am. So you kind of came to a crossroads where you had to decide whether or not you wanted to go back into law enforcement or really pursue this education thing. I mean, do you remember, was there uh, the moment or, or a moment when you realized that 
this education thing was more than just, you know, your assignment that this was a, a really a passion that you wanted to pursue? Probably my first month as an SRO, you know, I just spent two years working with, with gang members and, and it was very, very sad for me. You know, we had a lot of young men that had gotten into these street gangs, not realizing what they were doing and what they were signing up for. Once they're in the gang, there's really no safe way to get out of the gang. Mm -hmm. Like if you try and leave a gang, it, it's very bad for you. And a lot of times they would take beatings that they'd ended up dying from. Yeah. So I felt helpless in trying to get some of them help that wanted help. And we had a few success stories, but then in my first month at the high school, I realized, wait a minute, and I, I've got students everywhere that are on the verge of maybe going down that path or haven't made that decision yet. They're just looking for guidance and struggling. And I enjoyed that job so much. It's education found me. So yeah, it wasn't a hard decision to make. And uh, I've just been very lucky. I That's what got me out here to this area. There was a job in Sterling teaching that I qualified to teach for uh, with my uh, bachelor's degree in law enforcement and my experience in law enforcement. So that's what got me out here. And I ended up teaching in Sterling for five years. I went back to college and got my principal licensure, my master's in administration and Dixon High School hired me to be their assistant principal and went to Fulton High School, was their principal for five years, went back to school and got my superintendent's endorsement. And Bob Sondergroth came over and talked to me four years ago and, and I had gotten to know him pretty well. And he said, I, I really think you'd be a great fit to take over for me when I retire. And, and I came over and worked for him to see if I liked it and I loved it. And here I am. So it's been quite a journey, but God's been very good to me. He's kind of like just guided me where he thinks he needs me. And it's been in a position where I can help kids in some way. So I'm very lucky. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about some of those transitions, right, from principal to where you're at now, but I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated for that initial one, going from being a law enforcement officer, being a police officer, to going into a school, that feels like it can be a really difficult, you know, transition for some people. I'm sure that, you know, some officers have a hard time with it, because I think that it probably is a pretty different skill set, and it's a very different environment. I remember uh, my first day teaching in Sterling, and I yep. had a very large, I, I was I was hired to, at the Whiteside Area Career Center to teach a, a criminal justice careers class, yep. intro to criminal justice careers. So it was for any students that thought they wanted to do anything from policing to probation to being an attorney, uh, you know, to work in corrections, fire service. So it was all those things. And I remember walking in that first day, and I had 48 students staring at me, and the classes were an hour and 50 minutes long. And it, was one of the, it is one of the scariest things I've ever been like, I literally wanted to just like walk out of the room and get back in my squad car and go back to policing and I had been in three shootings. So there was nothing dangerous about standing there but it was very intimidating and my first year I had a blast but it was rough, you know I had a lot to learn, you know someone who had been you know, in policing for uh, 10 years, there was probably multiple times I'd accidentally maybe, you know, I, you, you get telling police stories and you let a, a, a swear word slip here and there or something that it's like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And, you know, and I apologize and I got better at it. But, you know, I think the students really appreciated the life experiences, but it was a little scary because I got there. I got hired like two weeks before the school started and the right. administration, you know, they were great people that hired me, but they didn't know anything about law enforcement. So they hired me and said, well, here, you need to figure out the curriculum two weeks before the school started. So uh, it was, I, I really quick went out to Sauk Valley Community College. I got a hold of their curriculum that they teach in the intro to criminal justice course and liked that and adapted it into kind of a year long course. And I was able to get my students dual credit through Sauk if they went through my class and Sauk Valley hired me to teach in their 
criminal justice program at night. So it was a nice, it was kind of a nice transition to this area, but yeah, it worked out really, really well. Yeah. You know, I'm really fascinated here because I, you know, talking about your career in law enforcement and I know, you know, school safety has been such a huge issue over the last couple of years, especially post Sandy Hook and Parkland and all that. There's been so many conversations. I am interested, again, as someone that worked in law enforcement, like has your perspective on, on what school safety means on a day-to-day basis changed? Because, you know, there's a lot of people that think of school safety as just SROs, as being police officers in schools, or is it monitoring students' Chromebooks? There's all sorts of things that can come into play when we're talking about school safety. And even in the last year or two, people have been having conversations about, should there be school resource officers? And does school safety actually mean more of an investment of mental health professionals and counselors aspect of it all? I'm just curious about your perspective on on what school safety means, and maybe that's how that's evolved over the years. You know, it's funny, it really hasn't, because to me, it's about building relationships with students. I mean, we can sit and we can talk about, I mean, sure, if, if you have the ability to make your campus as secure as a prison, where no one is getting onto the grounds with any type of weapon, you know, you're patting everyone down and you have, you know, barbed wire around a school. Of course, if you go to that extent, is it going to make your school technically safer? Yes. Schools don't have the ability to do that, and they shouldn't need right. to do that. Whether it was early on in my SRO career, all the way to I'm, I'm in the process of doing my dissertation right now, and I'm doing a dissertation for my doctorate degree on averted school shootings. Like I've got four instances in the, the Northern Illinois area where a student either got on campus with a gun or was on their way to campus with a gun, and it ended with nobody being hurt. Right. And we haven't done a lot of studies on those. Like how come yeah. no one got hurt there? How did, how did we avert that? So I'm studying those four instances and I'm going to see if I find any relationships or correlations that I can kind of report on. So that's going to be interesting to me. But I'm I'm a big believer in you have to develop relationships with your students and you have to get to know them. And if you take the time to do that and, and students feel like they have at least one or two adults in every building they can trust, then odds are you're going to have a good chance of finding out about something like that before it would actually happen. Right. I mean, you're going to have these rare instances every now and then where someone comes to a school that's not affiliated with the school and, and wants to hurt people. But those are very far and few in between. When you look at most school shootings, it's somebody that either is going to the school or was recently going to the school, is affiliated with the school. And when you look into the incidents, Many people knew that that person was planning to do that or capable of doing that, and no one said anything or no one got help for the person. So uh, I'm, I'm a certified trainer in behavioral threat assessment teams. It's now, it was always at the college level for a while in Illinois, you needed to have a behavioral threat assessment team. Now we have to have a K-12. So I've made sure that all my districts are trained. Matter of fact, I'm going to, to Byron tomorrow to train some of their new staff members and how to, how to do that, how to work with students and, and make sure that they if they're identified as needing supports or needing help, how we get them the help. And, and that's the big part of it because yeah. you know, as well as I do, if somebody wants to kill people and they don't care about going to jail for the rest of their life, or they don't care about dying themselves, there's probably a good chance they're going to hurt some people before they get taken out. And, and it's finding out about why these people want to hurt people, what they're struggling with ahead of time, and how can we identify them and get them help before it gets to that. And that's really the one real shot we have at solving some of these issues. We can talk about all the other stuff you want security-wise, right. but that's the number one way I think we're going to do it. 
Right. So in your mind, it's kind of just a, a collaboration, almost all of the above, where we're talking about the the mental health components of it that are building relationships and finding out about these things before that they could happen and, and building those relations between students and, you know, those uh, counselors or school psychologists and, you know, also if they have school resource officers, whoever else. Right. Any, any of those. I mean, you mentioned the school resource officer program. That's very yeah. near and dear to me. When people talk about doing away with the SRO program, yeah. that's a horrible thing. Well, let, let me clarify that. A good SRO program means that the school district and the police department work together to pick the right yeah. officer to be there. I mean, it should be all those organizations involved in interviewing the, the officer. Early on in SRO programs, there was sometimes a police department would take a police officer who just didn't get along with people and was getting in trouble, you know, on patrol. All right, we'll stick him or her in the school. That's a horrible idea. Then right. don't have the program. You're going to make it worse. The SRO program, when you have a school resource officer that cares about students and cares about educators and cares about making sure that they're safe and that they can get their work done, it's, the, it's one of the most important programs there ever is. I can't tell you how much I got done in my time at, at Mundelein High School in the six years I was there to, to help kids, help teachers, help make the building safe, and in turn, help make the community safe. Once yeah. the students got to know me, it was it was not uncommon for them to walk into my office and go, hey, o, they called me OT short for Officer Tennyson. Hey, you know that armed robbery that you had two weeks ago in town? Well, this is who did it. And this is how I know. I mean, I was solving crimes in our community because in any community, there's a good chance that a lot of the teenagers kind of know what's going on and what's happening. And once you build that relationship and they trust you and they know that you'll get it solved, but keep them out of it. I mean, there was tons of things. I was, I was, it was stupid. I was getting accommodations from my police department for solving crimes and I wasn't working at all. I just had students come in and tell me who was doing it. So, you know, it's, it's a two-way street. It makes your whole community better if you have the right person in that job. You did mention the, the research that you've been doing for your doctorates and the, the mm -hmm. dissertation with about, you know, identifying these cases where there was some kind of incident and, and, and nobody was hurt. At this point, have you been able to identify any, you know, common themes or anything like that? Or is that still <laughs> in the process? Hopefully, hopefully, Dr. Stevens, my dissertation chair uh, at Western won't watch this or listen to this because she'll call me and again, kind of give me her foot in my rear end because I've been, I've been, I already know my research sites, I've got my questions, my methodology is all good. I've just got to propose and then I'm going to go out and do my interviews at each of those four locations. And then that's when it's going to get really fun for me because then I get those, those interview responses and I can start to cold the data and look at their responses and try and see if I see any similarities there are things that that school district was doing to, to, to help that situation end well. Awesome. Well, again, one of the last questions I have for you then is, is, you know, obviously this is a show where we have people that are nominated on, but for you, did you have someone, you know, at any point in your education journey that inspired you, that made you feel like something like education could be an option for you or just help shape who you are? I tell you, there was so many staff at Mundelein High School, you know, when I started there, when I went there as the SRO, I totally planned on, you know, just being there a couple of years, trying to see if I liked it or not, and then going back to the road and being a sergeant and working my way up the command at, you know, at the police department. And, and there's no way I could sit here and name all of them. I mean, <laughs> yeah. when I was at, when I was at Mundelein High School, Jerry Daly was the assistant principal. And I worked with four deans that were great, Jerry Matea, John Algram, Perry Wilhelm. 
they, they were um, Dottie Ford. They, when I got to work with them and they were working with me every day, you know, they would tell me, Chris, you know, you're really good at this law enforcement thing, but boy, if you could ever get into education, that that's your niche. I see you work with these kids. And then I would have teachers. I'd go in and teach classes for them. You know, it got to the point where anything they thought they could relate my expertise to their curriculum. Like I went into biology and taught a lesson on how science helps in solving crimes. And I was an evidence tech. So I'd bring the kid in and I'd show the students how to dust for fingerprints and find fingerprints and collect them, how to go over a crime scene. I mean, once I started doing those things, the teachers were telling me, Chris, you really, I know you, I know you like law enforcement, but then you need to get into education. All right, Chris. Well, thanks a ton again for jumping on your 35,000 Zoom call of the year. Last thing before we get out of here, can I get a, uh, a Bears record prediction for the season? I'm pessimistic. I've been beaten down enough as a Bears fan. I'm going to say seven and 10. I'm, I'm going to actually, I'm going to go one more. I'm going to give them eight wins. As long as Nagy sticks to being a head coach and lets his personnel do what they need to do. Let, you know all about leave. this as a leader, right? It's about let, delegation, it, knowing who's the best for each task. I have awesome people working for me that are a lot smarter than me. And, and, and that's why I think our organization does so well. Got to have you, a lot you, of bill you. lasers under you. <laughs> exactly. So I think, I think if Nagy does what he's best at, which he's obviously a good coach, he gets them to play hard, you know, as players, no matter how down they are, it seems like they give effort, just let his team. He hired those coaches for a reason, right. you know, let his assistants coach. And I'm thinking hopefully eight or nine wins. So I'll be a little bit more optimistic. Yeah. I'm going to the 49ers game on Halloween. You are. I'm hoping that will be a win. Yep. Hey, as long as Justin's starting, I think that will be on at least a decent track for the future. I think I'm going to get to see Justin versus Trey Lance. It looks like. <laughs> it does look like that. All right. That'll, that'll be a fun game for me. That'll be, and really quick. Yeah. I, I, I think I saw that when you were an SRO, you were, you got to coach a little bit too. What sports did you coach? So I was very lucky. I got there and uh, I was a pretty good golfer in high school and, no kidding. And, uh, and I had a background in golf and, and was pretty good. And I, there was an opening and they asked me and I said, absolutely. So I got to coach golf from on the line for five years. I had a blast doing that. And then as soon as golf season was over, I, I also, I, I like to work out a lot. You know, it's my stress reliever. So I got hired to supervise the weight room yeah. after school and work out with the students and, you know, coaches would give me their programs. They want the students to follow. So I got to do that. I, it was, it was ridiculous. Like I felt guilty getting paid a stipend to do those things. I mean, it was after my hours as SRO. So I was able to do that, but it was, it was, it was phenomenal, you know, and, and people talk about principals, you know, high school principal, you live that life. Anybody that's done it knows you're there 24 seven. It seems like, and always at those things. And people would always ask me, how can you like get used to working all the time? And I would tell them watching the students compete isn't like work to me. It's so much fun once you get to know the students and then go to their games and watch them compete in athletics. That, to me, that's one of the best parts about working in a high school is getting to be part of that. So I do miss that now, you know, yeah. now that I don't have those relationships built with high school students and I go to a game here and there and I watch them compete and I love it, but not knowing, you know, the players as well as I used to is hard. Right. I mean, my so God, I you have what, part of it. did you say 23 school districts that you oversee? Something like 24, that? 24. 24. Do you, counties, do you yeah. just, do you just make your way to a sporting event at each and every one of them? That's a lot to keep track of. And there are probably a lot of rivalries between there. You can't root for one. It, it's very, yeah, it's very difficult, but uh, yeah, it, 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 it's just, it's, it's been an amazing ride for me and, and I'm, I'm blessed to be here and uh, I'm lucky to have this job and I will keep working as hard as I can to support the school districts. All right. Well, I, again, thanks so much. I appreciate the time, Chris. Thanks so much yeah. for jumping on again. No problem. 
Thanks for listening. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like Chris Tennyson. Send them our way at teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, subscribe, leave us a rating, share. And also, important note here, please subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter to keep up to date on everything having to do with the show. You can find a link to do that on this episode's webpage over on WNIJ.org. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs. You can hear all of their music on their SoundCloud and check out their episode that they were on of WNIJ's other local show, Sessions from Studio A. I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon and the Teacher's Lounge radio show on the last Friday of every month at 11 a.m. on WNIJ. But we'll see you back here on podcast services very soon. See ya.